Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I just remember looking down and about to close up, and I was kind of looking at the shelf right under me, kind of like I am right now. And when I looked back up, it was a gun right in my face. That gun is, you know, kind of right there. Just out of the blue, I mean, I was like, wow. And the first thing I thought about was the teenager who was working there, a real jovial guy. He made it fun. It didn't matter if it was a thousand people that we had to do orders for that day, if it were a hundred. And I just remember thinking, man, do not shoot him. Do not shoot me. I do not want to tell his mom that him working here got him hurt or killed. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Light Watkins Show. I'm Light Watkins, and I interview ordinary folks just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path, their purpose, or what they've identified as their mission in life. And in doing so, they've been able to positively impact and inspire the lives of many other people who've either heard about their story or who witnessed them in action, or people who have directly benefited from their work. And today, I am back in conversation with my old childhood friend, who happens to now be the first black mayor of my hometown of Montgomery, Alabama. His name is Mayor Stephen Reed. And Stephen has a new book out called First Best Lessons in Leadership and Legacy from Today's Civil Rights Movement. And the book goes into areas of his backstory that we didn't actually get into in our first podcast conversation together. More than that, though, I wanted to make this a sort of handbook for running for office and what it's really like to throw your hat in the ring for a local office in politics. That is, if you or someone you know is feeling called to get more involved in politics, because here's the thing. The easiest thing to do when there are issues and challenges and problems on the local level is to complain, to be negative, to criticize. The much harder thing to do, but that's arguably more productive, is to roll your sleeves up and be the change that you want to see in the world. Or at the very least, to support someone else who is trying to be the change that they want to see in the world. So that's kind of how I framed this conversation. We talked about Stephen's upbringing and the two times that he was faced with guns prior to running for office. It was very dramatic. We also talked about Stephen's biggest challenges while running for office and what sorts of issues he confronted once he was eventually voted as mayor and as probate judge prior to that. We also talked about how Stephen's earlier experiences of having a failed sandwich franchise and crunching numbers at American Airlines prepared him for what he would be experiencing as mayor many years later when he didn't even think he would ever run for public office, which again, just goes to show that everything you're doing right now is going to come into play at some point down the line as you get deeper into your purpose. So I always recommend going back and listening to the first episode that I have with a guest. They're coming back on again. And this was a shorter than usual conversation, but it was a very sweet one. I'm honored that Stephen and I were able to hop back on and have this second conversation. And I think you're really going to enjoy it. So without further ado, let us get to it. Here's my conversation with the 57th mayor of Montgomery, Alabama, Mayor Stephen L. Reed. Stephen Reed, Mayor Reed, thanks so much, man, for coming back onto the podcast. Good to see you again. You're looking good. Hey, listen, thank you, man. I appreciate that. Thanks for the opportunity and always good to come back and and talk with brothers and friends, man. 
Absolutely. So we did an episode together before, and we went really deep into your backstory. So we're not going to do that again for this episode, but you just released a book on October 10th, 2023 called First Best. I remember the original title was Raising Kings. So I guess the publisher wasn't crazy about that title. (laughs) We'll we'll talk about the title First Best. What does that mean? Yeah, the publisher nor nor the author. So it was both of us. I thought that was your idea, Raising Kings. No, that was my co-author, Fagan Harrison, who I love. But that theme was out there attached to a lot of different songs, other books and other things. So it was kind of taken. It was kind of compromised as a phrase. And so I didn't feel like it was really neat to the story. And mm-hmm. one of the things I wanted to do was to have something that was unique and to express kind of what I gained and what I wanted to share, you know, to that next generation. And that was not only to be the first, because that's relative. I don't view the first in most things in 2023, maybe the way we would have in 1963. Just a different time, but I viewed it more so from the standpoint of not just being the first, but being the very best. And that being something we ought to project more than just talking about this person is the first black mayor. Well, that's great, but my goal is to be the best. And that's how we came to that title and wanted to kind of add the little subtitle of the lessons and legacy from today's civil rights movement. Yeah. And you're currently in your second term as the first black mayor of Montgomery, Alabama, which is significant just because of the history of Montgomery, Alabama being the cradle of the Confederacy, et cetera. And so one of the things I love when people write a book is I get to see the more granular path, right? Because when we had our first conversation, I did my research and I was able to uncover, you know, things here and there, but I really got to see some of the behind the scenes and And so there's some terminology that I want us to define before we get into the conversation that you use throughout the book, starting with black belt. I want to talk about what the black belt is for the listener. And I also wanted to define, you use the term Joshua generation versus the Moses generation. So what are those terms referring to? So for those who are unfamiliar with the uh, geography of, of Alabama, that includes a lot of Alabamians, by the way, the Black Belt is a region that stretches across the central portion of the state, which was known for its rich Black soil. It also just happened to have, in part due to its rich Black soil, the highest level of Black population living in this region of Alabama from east to west. And so it's commonly referred to as the Black Belt, but it's an area that is probably more rural than it is urban, like other parts of the state, and certainly is more economically depressed, but rich in terms of history, because that's where Selma, Alabama is. That's where Montgomery resides, Lowndes County. All these are in this Black Belt region of the state. So when I refer to the Black Belt, That's what we're talking about there. And as it relates to the Joshua generation, I first heard the term coined during President Obama's rise to running for office in in 2007. And he talked about the Moses generation, obviously leading the Israelites out of promised land, but certainly not making it there. And the Joshua generation, Joshua and Caleb were those that made it to the promised land. Moses did not being the beneficiaries of that work and of that sacrifice. And I view our generation very much as a part of that with Dr. King and Hosea Williams and John Lewis and Ralph Abernathy and Rosa Parks and so many, Amelia Boynton Robinson, so many others. They were our Moses then. We are the Joshua generation, those that have gotten there and seen many of the benefits of their work and their sacrifice. And I can't put it near as eloquently as President Obama did when he was running for office and continued to do while serving. But that's what we're referring to in the book. You had a pivotal moment. We talked about it in our previous conversation with Obama specifically. But before we get to that, there were a few other pivotal moments in your life. One was when you were in fourth grade and you happened to answer the phone when your dad was away and he had a separate line and you didn't understand why there was a separate line. And so talk to us a little bit about your dad, for those of us who haven't heard your origin story and just 
through that experience of you bringing it up later on and your dad taking you out to the garage, like give us a sense of what he was like. Yeah, my dad grew up in a single parent household. Dad was killed at, at the age of nine in rural Alabama area, Connecticut County, Southwest Alabama, and came to Alabama State after going to the Army. And at Alabama State, he became a student leader. He was a student body president. And it was there that Dr. King handpicked him to be one of those leaders who would go on to Raleigh, North Carolina, with many others, to form the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Diane Nash and obviously John Lewis and so many others who were part of that movement at the time. And after that, while there, he was one of 17 students that helped integrate Montgomery's lunch counter. So he was an activist at the earliest time at, you know, someone's in the most dangerous time when students were integrating and pushing for change all across this country, in particular in the South. So my dad has a great story, and I think he turned that into advocacy work, not only in leading the Alabama State Teachers Association, which was the Black Teachers Association at the time, which was, if we think about it, you know, the primary way that most Black people in a post-civil rights world, or certainly post-integration world, were getting to the middle class was through government jobs, and education was a big one. So he was leading that organization and then turned that into political advocacy when the elders called him to lead a group called the Alabama Democratic Conference. It was and still is the oldest Black political caucus in Alabama at a time when Black people were just getting the right to vote in Alabama. Very significant. And as a young leader, someone who had been an activist, he channeled that energy into voting power and into political power to then go and push to become one of the first Black city councilmen elected in 1965 right here in Montgomery, Alabama. Served with your dad for a number of years there, but also took that platform, you know, even larger to the Democratic Party, to push the Democratic Party to bring more Black people into the party, be seated as delegates in 1968, and to continue that push all the way through his work in public education as the second-in-command at one of the largest teachers' unions in the country, the Alabama Education Association. So that's kind of a quick thumbnail sketch on his career, but it really has been, even as an elected leader and as a organizational leader, always been grounded in activism. And that's something that I think even we didn't know we were being taught, we were being taught, or we didn't know we were being told, we were being told. And something that, you know, I really appreciate, something that certainly is a part of my approach, not only to what I do as mayor, but just kind of what I do overall. So you're nine years old. You answer the phone that day. What does the caller say? Yeah. So fourth grade, getting home from elementary school. My dad is on the city council. And it's pretty much the face and voice for black political influence at the city and certainly one of two or three at the state level here. And it's interesting for me to think about that was, you know, 84-ish, 1984, I'm pretty sure. And to think about how proximate that was to Dr. King being assassinated and kind of 16 years seems like a long time, but it's really not now that I've gotten older. It doesn't seem like that long ago. But I pick up the phone as a fourth grader and the caller says, is Joe Reed there? And I say, you know, no, he's not or something to that effect. And he said, well, good. He said, well, good. Tell that nigga if he doesn't shut up, you know, we're going to blow his GD head off. And it was like, wow. I mean, and he says it in a way that, you know, maybe if you've seen some of the old John Grisham books that were adapted to movies with that Southern accent and that level of hate. I mean, I, I can't even act it out for me to hear it as a fourth grader. I mean, I wet myself at the time. I mean, it sounded real because I grew up hearing about Dr. King being assassinated, not just like once or twice to read about it, but I mean, hearing about it. We heard about Medgar Evers being assassinated in his driveway, hearing about it. And for us, that's why my dad, in part, always pulled into the garage, which, you know, I didn't know at that time. So to hear somebody say that to somebody who you know as a child was just very real and striking to me. And it was certainly a pivotal moment growing up and 
kind of let me know that things were a little bit different for me than they probably were for some of my friends and family. And your dad took you out to the garage and he put you inside of the infamous Oldsmobile? Yeah. You know, he took us outside or took me outside and just kind of talked about why he did the work that he does, what he was doing at that time, and why it was important that we not let that dictate our outlook onto other people. And, you know, he just kind of told the story of understanding the sacrifice, you know, that he was making, but also the cause that he was committed to. And he just talked about not letting hate drive us, not letting bigotry drive us, even if it drove other people. And it was just something that still stays with me to this day. But he also showed you something from the glove compartment as well to kind of ease your, oh. <laughs> ease your mind a oh, little yeah. bit. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he showed us his peace. <laughs> his Smith and Wesson. That's right. He showed us his peace. Because, we, you know, we could never go in the glove compartment. It was, it was like off limits. It was like... Come on, man, what, you got some gum in there? You got some candy you don't want us to have? It's like, no, it's not gum or candy. There was some heat, as they say, and that's kind of where he kept it. And, you know, I understood why he told us, you know, or told me why, you know, because, you know, he had told my older cousin that we just didn't know, my brother and sister and I, or at least I didn't. And he yeah. just told me, you know, why he carried it. I remember discovering my dad's piece. He had a piece as well. Yeah. He kept it in his sock drawer. I don't know why he kept it in his sock drawer, but <laughs> under the same kind of circumstances, he would get these crazy phone calls. And I remember a couple of times he would leave the house late at night with his gun. I don't know where he went or what he did, but it was, you know, it was a tense moment in those days in Alabama back during his city council days as well. But yeah. just to flash forward, you graduate just like me, you couldn't wait to get out of Montgomery, Alabama, get as far away as you could. So you end up working at American Airlines and you're kind of, what are you, like a data analyst or something like that? Or I'm a, Listen, that, that's a nice way of putting it. I was a data monkey. Uh, <laughs> data we were just monkey. keying in stuff, man. You know, we were just doing stuff all day, <laughs> it seems like, into the evening. I mean, we just keyed in stats and data, all that. They, You know, the title was Financial Analyst Marketing Performance. But yeah, it was a come in at the bottom type job, but it was, you know, part of the management leadership program. So at the bottom and you know, hopefully you rise up. I'm a strong believer that whatever people are doing, whether you're working at the deli, at the supermarket, or if you're working at a toll booth, you are learning something that's going to come into play oh, later on in yeah. your purpose, in your life trajectory. And so looking back now at those American Airlines days, you talked about how they didn't want to hear anything you had to say unless you could back it up with numbers. So what were some of the takeaways that you now reflect back on and think, okay, wow, I got this part of my current job, the way I see things now from that experience? Oh, yeah, uh, man, so much you know, I learned in that job. And I tell people and i run my own business as well. You learn probably the most when you're having to do things at a kind of at that grassroots at that bottom level, right? Because you're so close to everything and everyone versus, you know, you kind of rise up, you kind of get a little further away. Sometimes you get a little insulated and you aren't quite as in touch as you think you are. But some of the lessons I took away were one, the customer isn't necessarily always right, but the customer always matters. So it's not a matter of them being right or wrong, but they matter, they're relevant to your bottom line when you're in business, regardless of how large your business is. Perception is reality. But the other thing is that data drives results. You know, that numbers are king at the end of the day in terms of what ultimately, you know, businesses and organizations rise and fall on. You can have your emotions, you can have your opinion, but the data and the facts are going to be key drivers. And I think the third and probably most key important is that diversity was tantamount at American. Global company, something I bring to this job right now, people from all different backgrounds and beliefs. And essentially, you know, you were brought together to respect differences. And for us, that can be hard sometimes. You know, it can be hard. It can be tricky for us to do. But coming in there that first day and seeing that banner respecting differences coming from, you know, Morehouse College where very you know, conservative HBCU, all men in particular that time, 
across the street, of course, from Spelman College, all women, but it was different. And it was like, okay, you've got people literally all around the globe speaking various languages. And there was something there. And the whole goal was we're a team, we're an organization and we're driving things forward and we respect the differences that we may have. And that's a philosophy that guides me to this day. You also mentioned in the book how you realized from that experience how interconnected everything and everyone was, even though it was based, I believe, in Dallas, but you were dealing with circumstances and issues and opportunities all around the world because obviously it's a global company. Yeah, it's based in Fort Worth and, and I would be shunned for life if I didn't correct that. And most people say <laughs> Dallas, but only inside the culture of AA is there the distinction that there's Fort Worth and there's Dallas. And people would say, well, no, the Dallas airline is Southwest. So if you want to go there, go over there to Southwest and let them give you some peanuts. That's what we used to say back in the day, right? When Southwest would give you those peanuts. Hey, but on those flights, you know, the, to Chicago and everywhere else, those peanuts came in handy. So I'm yeah. not complaining. But no, I think the, the interconnected part of working then, working long hours and working with other high achievers and go-getters was that you realize there's far more we have in common than we don't. And I was just always curious about other parts of the world. You do a lot of you know world traveling now and, and you've done it for a number of years. I was always curious about that. We were brought up as travelers, but not necessarily international. We were going to see family, you know, in, in big cities. And then in those big cities, Chicago, Detroit, New York, and, and, and parts of, of Jersey, you know, you get introduced to these other ethnic enclaves, you know, Little Italy, all that stuff, Chinatown, whatever it may be. But for me, I think the interconnected piece was very important because it showed me that even in a big company and even in a big world, there's just varying degrees between us all. And I think that helped genuinely grow my personal you know, self spiritually I became more mature in part because of that, became more conscious about other cultures and other people and what they valued and how that was similar in some ways, but different in many others. But being able to appreciate that was just a tremendous takeaway. I, I tell even people to this day, didn't serve in the military, and I know that's someplace else where people get kind of get thrown in together and you got one mission. But you know, being at a company or organization like that, even though you don't appreciate it in the moment, if you respect it enough, it will add value for the rest of your life in terms of how you look at things and how you really go about your life and how you treat others. I mean, it sounds wonderful. And, you know, you're living in a major metropolitan area and you're able to travel all around the world. How did you know it was time to leave to go to grad school? Yeah, you know, I think I got a little frustrated. I kind of got somewhere. So when I was recruited, they was like, hey, you start in this company, you're going to be on this rotation, right? You start in this department and you get to see all sides of marketing. Well, marketing at a big airline, man, that sounds fun. Again, nobody tells you that 60 hours a week, you're going to be doing a lot of Excel spreadsheets, and a lot of analytical work. You're thinking of the four P's and all the things of selling and promoting and all that stuff. But kind of, kind of being locked in into being a, a numbers guy, that was never really just me. I wasn't really one who wanted to be just in the cubicle, you know, for the rest of my career. I really thought that I had more skill in my personality and, and just who I am than that. So, you know, wanted to do a little bit more professionally, wanted to get paid more like, like most young professionals. I decided to get out into the management consulting world, which a lot of my good friends had gone into coming out of college, they were making very good money for our age at the time. And they seemed to be having a great time doing it. And so I was like, man, I think I can do that and sounds fun. And, you know, let's see where it takes me. And ended up getting an offer with a small firm in Atlanta. And then shortly after that, you know, I mean, within a year, calendar year, 9-11 happens. And so the economy just goes into, I mean, just craters. So 30% of the company is laid off and Last hire, first fire. You know, that was me. Mm -hmm. So just after buying a condo in Buckhead at the time, thinking I had made it right next to one of the places that Diddy, he wasn't Diddy, I think it was Pub Daddy, 
owned at the time. So, I mean, I was, you know, living my best life. And then, you know, real world happens. And it's like, ah, uh, not so fast. Justin's, yeah. that was the, that was Justin. the spot in Atlanta. Justin's. So at that point, it was like, okay, you've been thinking about going back to, to grad school. This may be the time to kind of figure things out. And that certainly helped me make that decision. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, thehappinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. And you had a passion for business that time and having your own business. And you had the bright idea of starting up a franchise in Montgomery, Alabama, that your dad tried to talk you out of. (laughs) I love the conversation in the book where y'all were eating hamburgers. Your dad's trying to tell you how thin the margins are in the restaurant business. And you don't, you're not buying it. He goes, how much was your hamburger? He said, $2. (laughs) (laughs) You got it down. That's exactly right. So anyways, you open up Roly Poly. I remember this. I remember you having this franchise and because my brother worked there. Dustin worked there for a little while. Yeah. But yeah, you, you mentioned how this was a four year long endeavor that didn't quite turn out the way you wanted it to turn out. And it culminated in this incident that happened at 957 oh, yeah. in the evening. Yeah. The entrepreneurship thing is something as a bug I still have, right? In another chapter of life, I'm going to get back to that because I still believe that it's over important to do. And I probably follow business for good or bad, probably as much as I follow, probably more so than I follow politics. So still very interested in that because of why I think it matters to create jobs and to be able to show that example. In particular, in a city like ours, I tell people this quite a bit, that in Montgomery, we talk a lot of politics, prayer, and we talk protests, but we don't talk profit. And that's not to say that money is everything. It's not. But in the realm of American society and the world of capitalism, it's important. And it's something that here in the South, most Black communities have not really championed, much less conquered. And it's something that we still have to do. And so it's important to me. So I was reading Black Enterprise all the time. And I was taking all these notes and all these small business startup things. And, you know, at that time, Amazon was still a bookstore. I told a group this recently, and they were like, they didn't even know, like, Amazon started this online bookstore. And I'm like, yeah, you know, where you can buy my book. Like, it was just a bookstore. It's all it was. And they just couldn't conceive it at the time. So being passionate about growing the business, yeah, we thought we'd get in there and we were going to grow this franchise and sell it and keep turning things over and, Little did we know that you got to have a little bit more capital than just, you know, what's in your checking account and just what's on some credit cards to grow and expand your business. So when that incident happened, you know, we're about to close up. And again, when you're running, you know, your own shop, you do everything. And I just remember, you know, looking down, about to close up, and I was kind of looking at the shelf right under me, kind of like I am right now. 
And when I looked back up, it was a gun, you know, right in my face. And that gun is, you know, kind of right there, just out of the blue. I mean, I was like, wow. And the first thing I thought about was the teenager, you know, who was working there, a real jovial guy. I mean, he made it fun. It didn't matter if it was a thousand people that we had to do orders for that day, if it were a hundred. And I just remember thinking, man, do not shoot him. Do not shoot me. I do not want to tell his mom that him working here got him hurt or killed. So, you know, I just kind of say, take all the money, just go and try to do everything I've been teaching my cashiers at that moment to do. But it was just something that, you know, I never forgot. And, you know, I think it's something that humbles you in a way that one, you got to know that there's God on high who's looking down to guide you. And at the same time, you know, it just kind of put into perspective what really matters, what counts. And at that time, I wasn't thinking about anything superficial, anything symbolic or any money. It was don't shoot this kid back here and hopefully don't shoot me, just take the money. And, you know, we were all blessed that no shots were fired, nobody was harmed, and they got out of there with a few hundred dollars that we got back. So, yeah, something that, that still stays with me for sure. Later on, as mayor, or running for mayor, that became one of the themes of your campaign is we need to make it easier for people, especially Black-owned businesses, to raise capital. But yeah. before running for mayor, you decided to accept the call to become probate judge in Montgomery, Alabama. And that was in part due to, was it Sophia's Barbecue, the woman who ran yeah. that, that shop? Yeah. Getting yeah. a runaround to get that... Yeah get a license and you thought, yeah. you know, this is, this is not fair after having your own experience and running a business. So again, it all comes together. It all plays a part and it becomes a part of the motivating factor for taking you to the next step along your own trajectory. So talk about running for office for the first time, not yeah. quite sure if you were going to win. What does that even mean? How much does that cost? Like, what's a real world consideration? Because somebody out there may be listening to this right now. Sure. I hope. Thinking maybe I should run for office, but I don't really know what that means. It sounds like you were connected politically through your dad. Is that something that's necessary for someone to have? And if they don't have that, what's the next best thing to do? I ran because I was, you know, I, I always say out of frustration and inspiration. I was frustrated by the lack of change when I came back to Montgomery. I'd gotten on boards. I tried to do things kind of outside of the elected establishment, but just didn't see the growth. Didn't really see the movement coming. And more importantly, I didn't see the mindset changing. I think I was more impacted by that. And I was just like, wow, man, you know, we can't just be satisfied with these little baby steps we're taking when other folks are taking giant leaps, right, in other communities. So after trying to get friends of ours to run and other people to consider it, it came to me in part out of the inspiration of President Obama's victory and what that meant that, you know, maybe this was our time, right? And maybe I was one of those that needed to step up and lean in, if you will, to the position of public servant. And for me, it was a gift and a curse to have parents who were active who were known. So the gift was certainly you come in and there are people who like you and people who say, well, that's Joe and Molly's son. That's great. We know them. We love them. They've done good things in the community. We're going to support you. But there are also those people who think that, oh man, you're just here because of your parents, right? You couldn't do it by yourself. So you're just doing, you're carrying on the, the, the family business and, and you all aren't helping anybody. And that was part of the reason why I left Montgomery was to kind of create, and I'll talk about that in, in First Best, was to get out from under that shadow of, you know, my parents and last name and all this stuff to get somewhere, you know, even though it wasn't geographically far, culturally Morehouse was, was night and day because you've got so many people there from so many places. So when I came to run for office, it did help to have that understanding of politics and public service. And certainly it was a net positive. But the drawback was you had to kind of push back on this thing that 
you're not your own person. And I'm like, man, I left here and did more away from here than most of y'all have ever done. Y'all the ones who ain't never left. You know, it's like I left and came back and just found the, the car sitting on, you know, two cinder blocks here. And you all hadn't done what I would have hoped and would have thought. So for people who may be listening, may be interested in public service, I would say, one, if your heart is in it, think about it. You know, long before I ran, I volunteered on campaigns. Then I worked on campaigns and then I ran myself. And so, you know, I tell people, you don't have to jump into the deep end. You can kind of test it out a little bit and see if you like it and see if you don't. But then the second thing is you got to have a good nucleus of friends and family. And I had that, you know, I had friends that were encouraging, family that was encouraging because you need those things, in particular, if you aren't familiar with the system, you know, wherever you may live. But I encourage people to get involved, to get active and to talk to those people who are in public service, because many of them are looking for bright young minds in particular, but people with outside ideas to help move the agenda. And that for me was very big. And then I guess finally, it was about how do we go and make our case to the community has been with this person for so long and I think that there's not much better we can do. And my argument was one that it was time for us to move in a different direction, for us to move more proactively towards progress and equity. And it was something that I thought the elders really had set the pathway for. And the community was supportive of it and brought into that first run in 2012. And again, coming on the heels of coming at the same time as President Obama's reelection, there was a lot of symmetry there. And there was a lot of interest and a lot of energy behind bringing you know, some new ideas and new faces and thoughts to the table here. You also probably hope you don't get tested so much and you were kind of pressured pretty early on because gay marriage was legalized under your tenure and you were in Alabama, right? Which is not known as one of the more liberal states. And there's 67 or 68 judges and they reach out to everybody and say, you guys, we're not following this Supreme Court judgment. We're going to do our own thing. We're Alabama. Yeah. And you could have easily fallen in line. But talk about that experience and what went through your mind, you know, because, again, this is you're in Alabama, man. To your point, you're not that far away from Jim Crow, civil rights and all that stuff. Something crazy could theoretically happen. Yeah, I'll tell you, be honest. Just say what I'm thinking. At that time, I didn't know that I was stepping out, right? At that time, I was really just doing what I thought was right. And kind of use this analogy before us. And sometimes it's not that you step up, it's other other people step back. <laughs> and it was one of those, like, wait a minute. I mean, this is simple. It is the right thing to do. It's the law. Let's just do it. And man, I mean, I was blown away at the time by so many people who had these just thoughts. Again, I go back to my time at American Airlines and respecting differences, who had these thoughts of what things should be and what shouldn't and how they would go about it. And it was just amazing to be in those conversations. And, and so at that point, it was like, oh, okay, you guys aren't just stepping back. Y'all are stepping back and want to make a stand on this. And for me, it was like, just the opposite. And I kind of felt myself being in that moment that we had read about around pivotal times in American pivotal moments. And I was like, well, okay, what would you do? And what are you going to do? And I was like, you know, we're going to hold down the fort. We're going to push through it. And we're going to be loud about it. And we're going to be very direct and intentional about this and why it matters and why it matters that we here in Montgomery in particular set this standard. And it's just one that I didn't think in the mid-2014 or somewhere in 2015 that we'd be having a discussion. And it was a moment that I'm proud that, one, initially, I did what was right. And then, two, I'm glad that even after friends, even after friends and supporters say, okay, well, hey, you did that, but you know, do you really have to embrace it so much? Do you really have to carry this banner of the LGBTQ plus, you know, and same-sex marriage. And it was like, yeah, we have to do that. And here's why. 
And here's why it's not okay just to be silent on the matter. Here's why it's not okay just to kind of be meek and mild when it comes to moments like this. Because you have to meet resistance where it is and you have to push back. And I think that is something, again, that goes back to my parents and being taught or being around activism my whole life. And that was kind of the activist side, you know, kind of pushing back on this notion that, no, we're just going to, you know, go by law. Yeah, we're going to do that too, but we're also going to make sure that Montgomery and Alabama reconcile where they are and how we're trying to move things forward to bring out more equality for everyone. Do you feel like going against convention in that one incident gave yourself permission to become your own politician, your own person, to proceed in your own way by your own moral compass? Yeah, that's a great question. Yes, I think so. I know that after that, and I kind of talk about in the book when Justice Ward Moore, you know, saying he was going to arrest all these judges, right, remove us. Well, I had to do a double check. I was like, he can't remove us, can he? <laughs> I was like, let me just double check the code of Alabama over here on my shelf. That time I was off, but more importantly, as I kind of share in the book, when I talked to our sheriff, Derek Cunningham, and I said, hey, you know, Justice Moore, you know, talking about removing us from the book. He, you know, kind of gave me one of those looks out of that side. I like, whatever. And I don't know what the, what language I can use, but Sheriff Cunningham is one of those sheriffs. Let me just put it like that. He uses very strong language. And basically he was like, that ain't happening here. And that ain't what he said. He was like, and I wish he would come down here. We'll show him who's running what. And, you know, that also, you know, having, again, a colleague, Sheriff Cunningham, the first black sheriff in Montgomery's history, Montgomery County's history. And people don't know how powerful the sheriff's office is in most states, not just the South. But the Midwest, all the way out, the sheriff is an immensely, immensely powerful, if not high profile position. Sometimes we kind of, you know, mix up profile for power. It's not always equated there. But I think having someone in that position say, I got your back, also kind of fortified me and, and to make those decisions that, no, this is our time. We're going to move this forward. And then later you ran for mayor. What was the difference in running for mayor versus running for probate judge from, a again, a real world grassroots perspective? Yeah. I know you were the favorite and you you ended up winning by 67 percent of the vote. But did you find that you had to run harder? Was it oh, yeah. as much effort into it or how did that change? I thought I had to run hard again, you know, to, to prove myself, one, as my own person, but also that I was ready for the position. It's one of those things where. I kind of look back and say, maybe I should have, you know, run even earlier before then. But again, I trust the, the, the path that's been laid before me. But running for mayor was much more visible. And I didn't realize it at the time what it meant symbolically, not only the people who were in Montgomery, but the people who were not from Montgomery. And I, and I think that's kind of when I learned a little bit more appreciation of Montgomery's history in the country. Not as a big city, but as a historic city because of the, not only the bus boycott, Mrs. Parks, who you and your family knew, Mr. Parks, and, and what took place then, but the Selma Montgomery March for voting rights. What all of that meant at that time to generations of Black people and, and white Americans as well, I learned that as I was running for mayor, just the emotion that people had and this is going to sound crazy, part of you and your listeners, but I had so many people, I mean, so many people here talk about the emotion they felt like it was similar to President Obama's win. And I'm thinking to myself again, that's presidential level. We're just talking about mayor here. But for people on the ground and for local people that or people that had ties here, their parents, grandparents, whatnot from here, this area, from the state. It meant a lot. It was almost like this last bastion that had to be conquered, right? So running, there was pressure, but it was a profound joy for me because I really felt like I was prepared for it. I practiced for it. And I was embracing the challenge that I would see once we got in here to be able to quarterback the city, to be able to bring about change and to really be able to put my finger on the scale, if you will, to 
right some wrongs that had never been done before. So let me ask you this. I'm inviting you to be transparent here, okay? Yeah. We've all felt imposter syndrome, okay? You win mayor of Montgomery. To what extent do you feel imposter? I mean, you walk into the office, you've never been a mayor of any city before. Like, do you feel like, I don't know, what the fuck? (laughs) Who gave me to this? Like initially, those first like few weeks, like what is that like to win the mayor of such a historic place and storied? incidents happening, good and bad. Like, But what is that like? It is almost like you're watching a Netflix series or something that's out there. You're kind of viewing yourself kind of outside in, right? Like this drama, and you're just kind of amazed at what happens next. And no, you, you don't feel like... I remember when the guys came to pick me up. Like, and they had two or three SUVs that came to pick me and. My wife had kids up. Mentally, it was just like different. I mean, overwhelming. And then to get into the office and to have so many people, grocery stores, church, you know, ball games, just running a quick errand to the dry cleaners or, you know, picking up some food or whatever. So many people ask for your picture, tell you thank you or congratulations. Man, it was amazing. And the feeling, you know, really that kind of started to settle in. This is in weeks not months, but in weeks was responsibility. Like, whoa, okay, now you're in this place. Not only do you not have to mess it up, I mean, not mess it up, but you want to make sure that you make it right. Mm -hmm. And where do you start there and who's who and kind of where do you go? So it's a real different feeling and, you know, to kind of be watched and know that people are watching you. But also, I tell people this, as many critics as there are, Man, you hear from so many people who are who are praying for you and pushing for you, who are helping. And I mean, that outweighs the negativity. I mean, you hear from so many people. And again, even being from here, growing up a political family, I kind of you know share this in the book. I did not realize what becoming the first black mayor here meant to so many people. And again, I've talked to famous athletes, famous entertainers. Very, very wealthy people, billionaires. I am amazed at what this has meant symbolically to people who I would never think would know my name, would know anything about me long before I even thought about writing a book and would look and view this place as, as somewhat, you know, sacred ground. That's something, look, you know, I still kind of wrestle with, you know, I still have to kind of check myself. So when I go to a Spellhouse homecoming or I go to Howard University and hanging out, you know, it feels good to kind of get that, be brought back down to earth a little bit by your, your frat brothers, your, your friends and the guys who knew you win. Because you kind of need that because sometimes you can get caught in this kind of surreal space. And I got to share this story. I was in Martha's Vineyard this summer and I was reading about, you know, President Obama's coming in for the first time. And obviously they, they live, I have a house there now. And they weren't, you know, on the island when I was there. But it was just fascinating when I was just kind of thinking, I was like, you know, whatever I have, I was like, I could not imagine what this man and his wife and family must have felt with the country and the world. Like, I cannot imagine that way, that level of weight, but also just a level of interest. And everything that, you know, you pick up a hamburger, somebody's writing about, oh, you need a hamburger. You know, if you go out and you, you wear, you know, some type of, you know, dad jeans, somebody's joking on your jeans and this, you know, just whatever it is, right? And I was like, that is different. It's a lot of responsibility, but it's also, I think, one that you never quite get used to. And so you need that inner circle of friends to kind of be able to kind of check you a little bit and bring things back into focus. So you can continue doing what, people want and are looking for you to do it in your role. So uh, it's been, been which, a tremendous surprise. Yeah. yeah, you're part of a group chat of other mayors. What is that like? What are you guys talking about in this group chat? <laughs> <laughs> if the group oh, chat man. got leaked, what would we, what, what we see? <laughs> if the group chat got leaked, what would they see? Definitely a different side of brothers that, you know, lead in big cities, major cities, but, you know, we're interested in what Drake's new release sounds like. You know, want to know, okay, how much did your wife or your, your lady friend spend on her Beyonce tickets? You know, we, we make fun of one another and we kind of hold each other 
in a space where we can all be ourselves. But then at the same time, we're there to support one another. You know, if somebody has something happening in their city or somebody has something that, you know, may be challenging, you know, we were there to kind of uplift one another. And the thing that we talk about, you know, now is how, again, how blessed and fortunate we are because the previous generation of Black males that came after the movement didn't know what they were up against. And so we talk about those guys that came in the late 60s and the early 70s and the fact that, okay, we at least had that model of what to do, you know, what not to do and how to do it. They didn't have that. And the communities, you know, didn't always understand or appreciate that, you know, what this power structure, how it's made up in this country. And so our group chat, man, is is one that it can be lighthearted and, and, Somebody made fun of my picture on the on the book cover and what was Reed thinking then and, you know, fill in the little thought bubble. But at the same time, you know, we encourage one another to, to be bold and to, to be unapologetic in our quest for change and that we realize we stand on, on the shoulders of many who came before us, but that our folks in our community are looking to us as their peers to bring about that substantive change. And, and there can't be enough that we can do to, to help our folks in our respective cities and communities. You open the book with a bunch of ideologies and philosophies that you learned from your father, stuff like watch what people do rather than listen to what they say. I don't know if he said this, but you, you mentioned history never marches in a straight line. It zigzags. Keep God in the forefront. Pray and don't be embarrassed to ask people to pray for you because you'll need it. And so I'm curious, you have two sons, just like your father had two sons. And if you could leave for them word of wisdom that you didn't get dad, what would that word of wisdom be for your sons? Yeah, you know, in in the book, as much as it is a memoir, it is kind of a note or a text thread to this Gen Z millennial generation to understand, as I share with my young professional counsel here, that I didn't just start in the suit in, in, in the office, right? You know, I started outside the hall, you know, passing out the little program and the agenda. And then I was coming in to clean up after the real meeting was had. So I said, you know, it comes in steps and it doesn't come overnight. And you aren't always clear on where you're going. You got to have that faith. You got to have that belief in yourself to be successful. And I just shared with both of my sons last week something. I said, you know, if you strive to be successful, if you, you know, build, good habits, if you have good character, if you do the right thing and you treat people well, more often than not, things will work out for you. It may not work out for you when or where or how you think it will work out for you, but it will work out for you because I share with them and I share with young people all the time, I did not want to go into politics. I talk about that in the book. I did not plan to do anything I'm doing now, but I certainly appreciate the fact that I got this opportunity because it is rewarding to do things beyond just the profit that I talked about, because I was one who was focused on what's my signing bonus going to be? What's my annual bonus going to be? How much is the salary? What's the conversation? You know, all those things. And I have never hit any of those great metrics that 20 years ago, the 20 year version of me thought I would be focused on. But yet I think the work that I've done, the service I put in has been, as if not more rewarding than anything I could have made it. I've gone on Wall Street, I've been a partner in this firm or whatever it may be. And I try to tell my sons that you set that blueprint and that standard, the fact that you want to be the very best of whatever you commit your time to, whether it's art, whether it's coding, whether it's gaming, whether it's sports, whether it's debate, whether it's you know school clubs, whatever it may be, Set it that you want to be the best and then develop the habits in order to get there. And even if it's not over here, even if it's not over there, it's more than likely going to work out in a way that is beneficial to you and others. And, and that would be what I would share with Gen Z and millennials, but also what I would share even with our peers is, you know, I think we all need to self-assess every now and then and be aware of who we think we are and who other people think we are. What would you say your life mission is? I think, you know, my life mission is to really make transformative change for people of all backgrounds and ethnicities and races who 
have felt like they wouldn't see it. They wouldn't quite get it. One of the things I'm most proud of in my political career is uh, increasing the funding for our public schools, something that had never been voted on before. And I did it in my first year in office. But it's one of the things I share in the book. I brought it up to our leadership probably 10 years before we did it, 2010, before I was even in office. And then I brought it up again when I ran for probate judge. I just didn't have the control to do it. And that's one of the things that kind of inspired me to run for mayor because I couldn't really get the outcomes that I wanted. So I want to, my mission is to create that type of outcome that long after I'm gone from this office and hopefully long after I'm gone from this earth, there will be people who will not only say that, yeah, there's a name on the wall or there's somebody that served, but he was somebody that led us to a special place that benefited many, many others in a way that no one else had and had done in that time. And I just want to make sure that I don't get too focused on myself, even with this book, that I forget what the real mission is. And the real mission is to bring about substantive change that helps people in a tangible way that they can feel and they can see and they can hear. And the symbolism matters, but the substance matters even more. And that's doesn't always gel with great politics, doesn't always gel with if you want to be popular. But when you're committed to doing what's right and you're committed to make a difference, then it's easy to reconcile the two. Beautiful, man. Well, congratulations on your first book, which is called First Best Lessons in Leadership and Legacy from Today's Civil Rights Movement. And it's an honor having you back on the show. And I can't wait to get a chance to connect in person again very soon. Oh, man. Likewise. Listen, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity and reaching out. You've got a great audience and we hope that they enjoy the book. There's some funny stories in there, too. It's not all serious. But I think there are some lessons and some takeaways for all of us, regardless of age and stage. And, you know, it's not just a political book. It really is to me about that life's work and what those elders shared with us and what we learned from them versus how we apply it now. And now that we're coming into that season of life, how we can kind of leave some of those breadcrumbs for those folks coming behind us to really advance their cause and issues, whatever they may be. So it's been great talking with you, brother. Always appreciate you. And I appreciate the friendship and everything that you do and things you shared and things you taught us through our friendship over the years. Just know that it doesn't go unnoticed and just know there's value for me. Just appreciate all the love and support, brother. Thank you for tuning in to my interview with Mayor Stephen Reed. You can follow Mayor Reed on the socials at Stephen, which is S-T-E-V-E-N, Lewis, L-O-U-I-S, Reed, R-E-E-D. And his book, First Best, is available everywhere books are sold. And of course, I'll put links to it in the show notes as well, which you can always find at lightwatkins.com slash podcast. And if you enjoyed our conversation and you found it inspiring, and now you're thinking to yourself, wow, I would love to hear Light interview someone like Oprah. <laughs> Here's how you can make that interview happen, right? It's because I reach out to people like Oprah. I haven't actually reached out to Oprah yet, but people like Oprah all the time. And I invite them onto the podcast. And what typically happens is their gatekeepers receive the invitation and then they go and they vet whether or not this is a podcast that would be worth that person's time. So they go to the page and they look and they see how many ratings does this podcast have? How many reviews does it have? And if they can see that people are engaged in that way by rating and reviewing the podcast, then the chances of them saying, okay, this would be a great platform for someone like Oprah are so much higher than if they go there and they just see crickets. So that's why you hear podcasters like me always saying, please leave a review. That's the best way you can support the podcast. It's absolutely free. It takes less than 10 seconds. All you do is you glance down at your screen, you click on the name of the show, The Light Watkins Show. You scroll down past those first seven episodes. You'll see a space with five blank stars. Just click the star on the right and you've left us a five-star rating. If you want to go the extra mile, 
write one line about what you appreciated about this podcast. And that's it. And that way you've cast your vote for guests appearing on shows like this one. And also, don't forget that we have a YouTube channel where you can watch the podcast episodes if you ever want to put a face to a story. And all you do is go to youtube.com and you type in Light Watkins Podcast and you'll see the whole playlist. And I also post the raw, unedited version of every podcast in my Happiness Insiders online community. So if you like hearing all the mistakes and the false starts and the chit chat in the beginning and the end of every episode, you can listen to all of that by joining my online community at thehappinessinsiders.com. And other than that, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here again next week with another story about someone just like me or someone just like you who took a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose or they pivoted away from something that they didn't like to something that lit their heart up inside. And it's always an inspiring story. So until then, please keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart and keep taking those leaps of faith on your end. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. So thank you very much. Sending you lots of love and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.